0: I want you to remember or imagine being a young child in a large shop with your parent or with a parent um, and being separated from them. First of all, things are pretty crazy, just following along and you know, checking out what's around you. And you look back in front of you and it's not your parent anymore. How, what would you feel? Lost? Distressed? Alone? Afraid? Imagine how much worse you would feel if your parent had deliberately left you behind. In Psalm 22, we begin in the same situation of despair as King David cries out to God, "My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from the words of... sorry, why are you so far from saving me? So far from the words of my groaning." David feels lost, distressed, alone, and afraid. God then leads us on a journey um, through David's thoughts, words, actions, and feelings as we find out what David does to keep everything in perspective and climb out of the despair that he begins in. But first of all, it's worth taking a step back and considering this. By the time David wrote this, or put it into the public domain as a song for the nation's music leader to, music leader to use, see how it's addressed um, to the director of music? Anyway, by the time it became public, David knew the outcome. He was no longer in a pit of isolation and loneliness. So why has David recorded this song? I'm pretty sure that David wants everyone to call upon God to rescue them. In particular, David shows how God is trustworthy and he testifies to how God has rescued him from his enemies and distress, even when he felt like God had deserted him. We can also call out to God to rescue us. Right, let's check out what David has written. We've already seen how David begins this psalm feeling isolated from God as though God was not listening to him. He goes on with this description in verse 2 where he talks about how he cries out to God day and night and God still does not answer him. Take a note of what David does next in verses 3 to 5. Even though he feels cut off from God at the moment, what does David do to help the situation? Put your hands up if you have an answer. What does David do to get out of the situation? Anyone? Yep. Yep. And why? I'll tell you. He he remembers what God is like. Um, He remembers people's response to God. So you can see there, he remembers that God is the Holy One of Israel, the praise of Israel, Um, You trust in the one who delivers and saves and does not disappoint his people. In other words, David remembers that God is a faithful, personal and active God and begins to climb up from the depth of despair that he's in. He doesn't wallow in despair, but remembers God and his proven history of deliverance um, and dependability, which helps him to to keep his faith alive. And this is a helpful hint to us as well when things are not going so well between us and God. Um, I've heard it said this way. Do not doubt in the dark what you have seen in the light. Did you notice the three uses of the word trust in verses 4 and 5? Let me read it to you again in verse, from verse 3. Yet you are enthroned as a holy one. You are the praise of Israel. In you our fathers put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. They cried to you and were saved. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. So David's people have a history of trusting God based on the experience of being delivered and saved, which he is remembering here. And it's interesting to, interesting to note that trusting God does not necessarily mean sta- being in a state of peace and calmness. They cried to God and were saved, verse 5. God's people often were often in distress when they cried out to God in trusting, pleas for forgiveness. Anyway, David is still not feeling real flash in verses 6 to 8. In fact, he describes himself as being a worm. He feels utterly unworthy. He is mocked, insulted, and probably wonders whether his faith in God is misplaced. But once again, David does something to change his perspective for a moment. He reflects on God's personal and lifelong care of him, and once again calls out to God. David says that he is surrounded by powerful enemies and describes them as being like bulls or lions. And these aren't any old, underfed, skinny bulls. These are bulls of Bashan, which is an area, which is an area in the northeast of David's territory, King David's territory, that is, that is famously fertile. So these enemies um, are like really big, well fed bulls. I was once at a cattle auction, and while I was there, a bull somehow managed to get out of its pen. And he was big, well fed, and really angry. Um, and he was snorting and charging down the corridor. And you should have seen the reaction. There's men jumping fences everywhere to get out of the way of this wild, dangerous beast. And all of a sudden, it was just the bull and me in the corridor. Um, I knew I had a moment before the bull got to me, so I looked around and I saw an empty cattle pen. So I opened the gate and pulled it in front of me and stood there in front of the bull. Um, And as it came charging towards me, I bluffed it by waving my hands and and, um, and stomping my feet and probably yelling, I can't remember. Um, And the bull paused saw the opening into the gateway and ran into the cattle pen and I was able to lock it in with no worries. But I'll tell you, it was pretty scary. <laughs> Thank you. It was pretty scary and that was just one bull. The picture David paints is that he's surrounded by bulls or lions and it's not like David is wimpy. He is the king, the leader of a decent army and very experienced in battle. When he was a boy, or at the most a teenager, he fought he faced the giant man, Goliath, one-on-one on one and one. And then he used a giant, then he used Goliath's sword to cut his head off. He also describes how he had killed lions and bears when he was a shepherd boy. The Bible book 1 Samuel, chapter 17, verses 34 to 36, describe how David would, would chase a bear or a lion that had stolen a sheep of his father's, and he would strike it. You'd strike it down and rescue the sheep from its mouth, and get this: when the bull, sorry, when the lion or bear um, would turn on him, he would seize it by its hair, strike it, and kill it. Now that's pretty hectic and pretty brave. So David was not a wimp. Yet here in Psalm 22, we have David stating that in verse 14 and 15, "All my bones are out of joint; my heart is turned to wax." Um, And has melted, and his strength is dried up like crusty bits of broken pottery. That's what a pot shirt is. Also, David's mouth is all dried up, and he feels that he is at the point of death. And all the while, he continually calls out to God to rescue him. This is pretty impressive in itself. Even when everything is completely pear shaped, David is still calling upon God, even calling God his strength. Verse 19. David knows that God is the answer the only one who can rescue him from his situation. And suddenly, in verse 22, David is proven right. God does answer David's prayer. I gather that the clarity of um, of God's answer is partially lost in translation. There should be some kind of sigh of relief at the end of verse 21. But you can clearly see the change of mood from verse 22, where we had the second reader come up to kind of show you. Suddenly, David is promising that he will declare God's name to his fellow believers, and will praise God in the congregation, along with other believers who he encourages to praise God. He urges God's people, sorry, he urges God's chosen people to honour God and revere Him. Verse 23, because He has He has not remained hidden, but has answered David's David's cries for help. David tells how God is the theme of his praise, and then he talks about fulfilling a vow and the poor, verse 26, and the rich, verse 29, eating. This needs further explanation. In King King David's time, it was quite a common practice to pledge a sacrifice or service as a vow if God answered a particular request. And in the case of a sacrifice being offered, it was also common practice that the sacrificed meat would be then eaten um, with others as a feast. In this instance of David's impending doom and seemingly extreme isolation from God, David has obviously... Um, vowed a very large sacrifice of many animals to God if only God will answer him and rescue him from from being smashed. God has answered and now David is very pleased to fulfil his vow, especially among fellow God-believers, verse 25 and a half, as the poor eat plenty and the rich enjoy the feast also. But notice how the feast is not merely physically filling, it's also spiritually fulfilling too. Verse 26. They who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. Those at the feast will be encouraged to praise God as they participate in the thanksgiving event for God's answer to David. Even the rich and seemingly self sufficient will have the chance to join the feast and worship God. And then, with a few other words of prediction, David finishes the psalm with the words, For he has done it, which could be translated, It is finished. David has shown us a journey of his, from, from despair at feeling isolated from God to being rescued by God from a particularly tough situation. He reminds himself and us of God's proven faithfulness in the past and has shown that once again God reveals him. Oh, sorry, God rescues him. Thank you, pardon. David encourages people, especially those who know God, as much as this was possible a thousand years before Christ, to honour him, to, rem- to revere him and praise him to call out to God and trust Him. Have you ever had that feeling that you've forgotten something or left something behind? Well, you should have that feeling now because there is much more to this passage than I've just shown you. Keep your sleep belts on and let's check out Psalm 22 again from the beginning. Verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, where have you heard those words before? These are the words that Jesus cried out to God when he was hanging beaten and bloody on a cross outside Jerusalem with everyone's sins separating him from his father. We'll look at this more in a moment, but first of all, are these really Jesus' words or is it just a coincidence? It is not a coincidence, but a parallel prophetic description. In other words, while David is no doubt describing a situation of great distress that he, distress that he is in, he's is also being used by God to, to describe a situation of great distress, Oops, sorry, to describe some of the details surrounding Jesus and his death on the cross. He then prophetically predicts many people turning to Jesus. And this psalm was written about Jesus a thousand years or so before he was even born. If you flip with me for a moment to Acts 2, 29-30, we have the account of the Apostle Peter speaking to the crowd and he briefly mentions David when he says... Brothers, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here with us to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. The point here is that David is described by Peter in the New Testament as being a prophet. Also, in the first few chapters of the the Bible book Hebrews, Psalms are quoted a lot and often described as God saying this or that. In other words, while David wrote these psalms, the, the real author is, a God, is God, the Holy Spirit. In Hebrews 2.11, Psalm 22, verse 22 is quoted and is, and is described as being the very words of Jesus. With all, this, with all this in mind, you should easily be able to believe that God is pointing the reader of Psalm 22 to Jesus through David's writings. Psalm 22 is kind of like a sofa bed. Um, David writing about his own experience is like the normal couch. But if you dig a bit deeper and and move a few cushions, you discover there's a a fold-out bed, which is the experience and the experiences of Jesus. So have a look with me as we check out some of the descriptions of Jesus and his crucifixion as we pull off the cushions and unfold the bed. We've already briefly noted Jesus' cry of anguish in verse 1. Verses 7 to 8 relate to um, to when Jesus is being mocked by the chief priests, uh, teachers of the law and the elders while hanging on the cross. How about you read verses 7 and 8 while I read Matthew 27, 39 to 43. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the son of God. In the same way the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him. You can see the similarities, can't you? Jesus is being mocked and insulted. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him. There are several times that Jesus had enemies um, encircling him, like the bulls of Bashan in verse 13. When Jesus was having... Sorry, first of all, when he was captured in the Garden of Gethsemane. Another is when Jesus was having his illegal trial with, uh, in front of the high priest and the um, teachers of the law. Another instance is standing before Pontius Pilate with the crowd shouting, Crucify him, crucify him, Matthew 27, ish a fourth example is when Jesus is mocked and assaulted by the soldiers just before he's led away to be crucified. And finally, when Jesus is hanging on the cross, he had many enemies gathered around insulting him and mocking him, as we've already noticed in Matthew 27. Psalm 22:16 16 says that, Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. This is fairly clearly a reference to having nails pierced Jesus as he is crucified. It's also interesting to consider that when the psalm was written in about 1000 BC, crucifixion was not known as a punishment to Jews. This was introduced much later by the Romans who had control of the area in the time of Jesus. Verse 17 continues with, I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments and cast lots for my clothing. Hanging naked outstretched on a cross would put you in a position where your rib cage and many of your bones uh, in your limbs would be exposed. And while Jesus was hanging there, there would have been no shortage of people staring and gloating over him. Staring could have been supporters, but gloating would have been the the non-supporters. Also, all four gospel accounts record Jesus' garments being divided up with the casting of lots, which I gather is like drawing straws where the person who draws a short straw wins, or loses, depending. Um john nineteen twenty three to 24 gives the most detailed description of this sharing of jesus clothes and john finishes his description of the crucifixion with the response in verse 30 that jesus said it is finished before bowing his head and giving up his spirit this is pretty much the same wording that we have at the end of the psalm where david wrote for he has done it done what what is finished We know from this psalm that David cried out to God for rescue and that God delivered, as evidenced by his generous banquet. But what about Jesus and what about us? Before I answer these two questions, let's think about what Jesus went through during his crucifixion. What is the worst experience that Jesus went through? Could it be the physical assaults, the whipping, the crown of thorns, being struck repeatedly or being nailed to the cross? What about the emotional assault, the mocks, jeers, taunts and the shame of being hung naked on a cross? No, the worst experience that Jesus endures is being absolutely isolated from God. This is echoed in Jesus' heartfelt cry, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So why didn't God rescue Jesus? It is because God was carrying out a radical rescue plan to rescue us. Jesus was killed so that we could be rescued. What do we need rescuing from, some of you may ask? We need rescuing from absolute isolation from God. And the only way that this could happen was for Jesus to die for us, instead of us, because of us. Basically, God is perfect. Completely, absolutely, totally perfect. And he cannot mix with us, otherwise he wouldn't be perfect anymore. As you know, you are not perfect, not even close. Sorry, but you're selfish by nature. You're sinful by nature. And it is a sin that pollutes you and means that you cannot know God and must therefore remain isolated from him forever. The consequence of sin is separation from God. Sin is anything that God forbids or not doing what he wants. What does God want? He wants an intimate, loving relationship with you. He wants you to let him be the absolute focus of your lives. (coughs) He wants you to live for him and with him. But for so long and too often we have been too busy living for ourselves. Sin and separation. When Jesus called out from the cross, it is finished, and then died, he was talking about God's rescue plan for us. He was referring to himself taking your consequence of sin. Did I say yourself? He was referring to himself taking your consequence of sin. (coughs) Jesus is the one who died for you. Jesus is the one who was separated from God for you. Jesus accepted the consequence for everybody's sin so that in God's eyes you can now be seen as being sinless. You can now mix with our perfect God if you accept Jesus' death for you if you accept God's forgiveness through Jesus' death and separation for you. Jesus was killed so that you could be rescued. Jesus was killed so that you could be forgiven. I said at the beginning of this talk that David wanted everyone to call upon God to rescue them. We can also see that God wants everyone to know him. We can also see that Jesus, who is God, wants everyone to know his Father, which is why he willingly, painfully, embarrassingly, remain committed to God's plan of rescue by taking our consequence of the sin and being isolated from God for a time, from his, from his death on the cross until his resurrection. Accept God's rescue. Accept God's forgiveness through Jesus. Don't be distant. So if you have never accepted God's forgiveness and begun a relationship with him, and if you realize that you are a sinner, or if you are in a growing relationship with God, but know that you've sinned again, don't just apologise calmly. How about you find a time and a place where you can do what David did? Find a place where you can cry out to God, beg for mercy and forgiveness, knowing that you do not deserve either. Beg for forgiveness, knowing that it has been bought by Jesus for you. Beg God to rescue you from your sin, knowing that this is exactly why he did not rescue Jesus from our sin. And then, Do whatever you can to keep on getting to know God. Learn about him. Live more and more the way he wants you to. Keep on apologising, asking him to help you change when you sin. Fall in love with Jesus and be a close friend of him. Don't be distant. It is finished.